This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. This week we have an explosive episode in store as we look into the history of English Heritage's artillery collection and how it was used to defend the nation. We'll also hear about the conservation work being undertaken to ensure these rare guns and cannon survive for future generations to admire. And today we have plenty of expert firepower to talk us through the subject. Senior Properties Historian Paul Patterson. Hello, Charles. Curator of Collections Ian Lines. Hello, Charles. And Senior Collections Conservator Beth Stanley. Hello, Charles. Hello to all of you. Thanks for coming on. So we've got a, a real magazine of experts on today, haven't we? Paul, let's start off with some definitions. What is artillery? Well, you've certainly started off well with the puns again, Charles. But uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll bring in the big guns now, so... Artillery is basically the name given to large weapons that fire explosive projectiles. We call them guns, generally, and they were made possible by the discovery or the creation of gunpowder. So until the coming of aircraft in the 20th century and nuclear fusion in the middle of the 20th century, artillery were the most terrible and most destructive weapon of war for quite some time. So you might ask why we choose to preserve such awful weapons. Well, put simply, artillery has played a major part in the history of warfare. You might say for both good and bad. And as such, it's had a continuous presence on many of our own historic sites. Indeed, many of these sites were designed or adapted for guns. So we can't really understand those sites. We can't really experience them or interpret them without preserving examples of these artillery pieces. So in its first recognizable form, artillery is the name which came to be given to large guns, requiring several people to work them. They were usually mounted on a stout wooden stock or carriage, and they often had wheels for greater maneuverability. Today, and for a long time past, these larger guns have been commonly called cannon, and that's what ordinary people refer to them as. And it's thought to have come from a word that means tube, although a cannon was, by the mid-16th century, a specific calibre of gun. That means it has an internal diameter of the gun bore, and it's called a cannon because of that. But in the popular imagination, artillery, big black guns are called cannon. And high and calibre because they've got a wide cylinder from which the projectile is fired. Exactly. And it's gunpowder which is the agent that made these guns work. And it was created in China in the late 9th or early 10th century, so approximately 1,100 years ago. They used it first in bamboo tubes, but obviously later in metal ones. And its use for warfare was commonplace in China by round about the turn of the 13th and 14th century, so right in the middle of the medieval period. 
And it's a funny stuff. It's a, it's a chemical mixture, which is unstable. And it was used both as the propellant in guns to throw or fire these projectiles from the gun, often a stone or a metal ball. We'd call it a cannonball these days, mm -hmm. but also as an explosive in hollow balls called shells. So when it arrived at its intended target, it would explode. And so it's made by combining three things, something called saltpeter, which is a naturally occurring mineral, potassium nitrate, charcoal, which is obviously common, and sulfur. And they have to be mixed in a certain ratio. So what happens when you've made your gunpowder is that you put it in this tube, which is open at one end and closed at the other. And at the back end where this charge of gunpowder is, is connected to the outside by a vent, which you fill with a smaller amount of gunpowder. As soon as you light that vent, it burns through and explodes the gunpowder in the cylinder or the cannon. And the pressure caused by the explosion propels the projectile, the stone or metal cannonball at huge speed from the open end of the tube. And that's basically how it works. And I'm, I believe I'm right in saying on a grammatical point that cannon and cannons are acceptable both for the plural form. Yeah, that's right. I think the purists say cannon for both, but you know, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's one thing we've cleared up for the, <laughs> for the annals, haven't we? <laughs> yes. um, so when did artillery first appear in the British Isles? You've talked about it being a Chinese invention effectively. Yeah. So it reaches Europe, gunpowder that is, reaches Europe in the 13th century. And it's possibly brought by Arab traders via the Silk Roads across Asia, or maybe the sea routes via the Indian Ocean. Or perhaps even during the cataclysmic Mongol invasions that spread from the East into Eastern Europe in the 1240s. It was known in England to a Somerset-born monk, who was also an author and an alchemist, a man called Roger Bacon, who lived in the 13th century. And he probably came across it in the form of firecrackers, which may have been brought back through trade routes to England. Hmm. And we think it may have been used in explosive projectiles in England, thrown by traditional engines. You remember these catapults that they used to use for sieges? Yes. Rather like a large bore, yeah? So they used tension and torsion rather than an explosive. So it may have been used then, but the first reliable account of use in England of what we could call a gun using gunpowder is in 1327. And this thing was called a crackis of war. And a crackis, we think, is the sound that it made. It's making this big bang, this big crack, which mm. is why it's referred to in that way. So in 1327, Edward II, King of England, is conducting a military campaign against the Scots. And we know that they're using early cannon. We also have, of exactly the same date, 1327, an illustration in a manuscript written by someone called Walter of Millimeat. Again, 1327, something which we called a pot de fer in French, which basically means an iron pot. And this illustration is an early artillery piece. And what it shows is something that looks like a rather large vase on its side. So it's bulbous at the bottom and it's got a flaring neck. And from this thing is a large arrow is projecting and there are flames coming out and it's standing on a, a stout wooden trestle. So it looks like it's been cast from bronze, probably by a bell founder because they were well-versed in making bronze bells at the time. They'd adapted that technology to create this pot de fer, which is the first kind of artillery piece that we can identify in England. 
A little bit later, 1346, the Great Battle of Crecy during the Hundred Years' War against the French, a mention of between three and five guns, which we would recognize as cannon, which were used by the French. And it's mentioned by a Florentine author. He says, this is a quote, the English guns cast iron balls by means of fire. They made a noise like thunder and caused much loss in men and horses. The Genoese were continually hit by the archers and the gunners, and the whole plain was covered by men struck down by arrows and cannonballs. Mm. So here we have it, the first effect in wartime of any scale of artillery. But these 14th century guns were relatively small and they fired darts and small cannonballs. And actually they were dangerous to operate as well because the technology wasn't properly understood of how to make them. And they were prone to bursting if they were made of iron. And if they were made of bronze, they often went soft and simply flagged and uh, mm. became unusable. However, by 1450, so 100 years later than their first appearance, we know that they had become a powerful weapon of war, both on the battlefield and in sieges against fortifications or mounted actually on fortifications for defense. So in this 100-year period, the technology is more or less routine. So you've described there the impact of the artillery on warfare in the sense that it's sort of almost revolutionizes and adds another dimension to attacking an enemy. And you've yeah. also talked about how it could almost backfire. Yeah. How they could sort of warp and the technology was obviously developing in such a way that it wasn't always perfect, but it clearly, when it did work, was devastating to an enemy. What was the real impact historically for artillery? First, it was a terror weapon, actually. Fire and noise created panic and fear among men and horses on the battlefield. Guns did cause battlefield casualties, but in small numbers, because the guns were just a few, they were relatively small, and they weren't used as you know massed artillery, as in later times. We've looked at these difficulties of manufacture as well. So they were dangerous as well to the operators, and that, you know they need skilled people to understand that. But as techniques, knowledge, and experience improved and accumulated, better guns were made of brass or of wrought iron bars, which they forge welded together around a, a wooden former. And then they held this forge welded cylinder with iron hoops shrunk around them. So then the gun was secured to a stout wooden carriage to control recoil and held onto it actually by rope usually, or sometimes iron bands. Some of these guns were huge. The largest we know about are called bombards, and the biggest one was probably over five meters long with a bore of almost half a meter. We know historically that there were actually bigger ones, but it, at this time in the, in the medieval period, in the 15th century, they're about that size at the largest. So the huge stone balls that they could fire were easily capable of battering down castle and town walls making them a very effective siege weapon, never mind a battlefield weapon. And they often gave them kind of humorous names like the king's daughter or Mad Meg, yeah. slight, slightly wacky names that they gave them because of their characteristics. But the increased use of smaller artillery than this in larger numbers and on wheeled carriages made them effective and mobile on the battlefield. So again, by the middle to late 15th century, large artillery trains, as they called them, so large numbers of guns forming a train, if you like, going to the battlefield and then deploying. 
were a major part of European field armies. And actually, by that time, they could inflict huge casualties in open warfare, as well as causing massive damage during sieges. So the power of artillery as it developed and its devastating effects ushered in a period during which fortifications themselves were slowly transformed. So high castle and town walls could no longer cut it. They had to be modified or rebuilt to new low profile designs mm. with thick earth walls, broad, thick earth walls faced in stone to present a difficult target and also to resist or absorb incoming gunfire. And they also incorporated on these fortifications special gun platforms called bastions so they could provide outgoing fire from their own guns to try and destroy enemy gun positions. We stood on but, one at uh, Deal Castle, haven't we? We did indeed, yeah. we Absolutely we did. By the early 16th century then, artillery fortification had itself, as a result of the invention of artillery, become a precise architectural and mathematical discipline that enabled defenders to maximize their resistance to artillery. And so thereafter, the following 350 years into the 20th century, saw artillery and fortification being made ever more powerful and sophisticated. And the ability to hit a target at long distance gradually refined and made precise, especially in the later 19th century and after uh, by things like huge improvements in machining of geared mechanisms to be able to move the guns more accurately and quickly, the making of optical sights to locate the target better, mm. and better understanding of explosives and ballistics. So artillery fortification itself played a major role in warfare until the early years of the 20th century, when the massive, by that time, destructive power of artillery meant that mobility had to be restored to warfare so fortifications become to be abandoned because artillery is so powerful that it can't withstand it. And also by the coming of aircraft, which made the mobility and warfare even more urgent. But it's a sobering thought that during the First World War, for instance, there were more artillerymen than any other arm of service. And artillery caused more casualties than any other weapon. It was devastating. Do you know roughly how the trajectory of the development of artillery sort of changed over the centuries and the distances that they gradually managed to achieve? Do we know? Yeah, I think distance improves only slightly from the middle of the 14th century when it first appears to the early part of the 19th century. It does improve, but it improves slowly. And then from the middle of the 19th century, distance and accuracy improve very rapidly and there is in fact a massive arms race between the major european nations the onset of warfare in the later 19th century and the threat of warfare actually means that targeting systems and the power of explosives and the ability to hit the target develop extremely quickly we've talked about how obviously the distances improved over time and also how the defenses in relation to the uh, artillery attack methodology would have changed as well but uh, the artillery itself changed a bit as well over time didn't it could you describe some of the key developments basically it starts off that guns are generally made from brass at the very beginning because the technology of brass casting mainly through bell foundries is very well known so brass guns persist in being cast well into the 18th century yeah they're still being used 
but by which time they are slowly replaced by iron guns and cast iron guns. The problem with iron, it had been used from the first, but it had to be forged from these iron bars that I described earlier, which are welded together effectively to make a cylinder. And there are inherent weaknesses, obviously. If you don't weld correctly, then you're introducing weakness where a gun can burst. And that actually happened quite a lot. So it's only in the 1540s that cast guns in England and Germany and some in France and Holland are being fairly successfully made. But it really doesn't take off in quantity until the very end of the 16th century. And then you're starting to get more and more reliable cast iron cannon, as we would call them today. There are still problems, however, because it very much depends on the source of the iron that you're using, because iron has different impurities. And if you're not careful, you can make guns that are either too brittle or too soft. And they don't really understand that, or at least not master it, until the very end of the 18th century. So from that time, going through into the 19th century, they're starting to make reliable cast iron guns that don't burst. The next step is because all these guns are what we call smooth bore artillery, i.e. the bore is smooth and the ball is just fired out at the end of the gun. What happens in the middle of the 19th century is that they invent something called rifling. And rifling enables the projectile to spin. And spinning the projectile stabilizes its flight. And that's one of the things that makes artillery more accurate. Allied to that, they produce new explosives towards the end of the 19th century, which are more efficient. Gunpowder is inherently unstable. And there are other chemical explosives invented, such as cordite, which are far more efficient and far more powerful. So they can throw the projectile further. And then I suppose the other thing that happens is that guns are put on far more effective carriages so they can be moved sideways, up and down, and targeted more effectively alongside the ability to locate the target through accurate optical range-finding instrument. And that's a continuous process which actually still goes on today. Yes, science continuously improves warfare. But um, the relevance of artillery to English heritage sites, for example, why is it relevant to some English heritage sites? That's quite a broad question because I'm sure there are lots of English heritage sites yeah. with artillery. Well, it's a comfortable question because artillery was positioned in many sites that are now in the care of English heritage, you know, from our earliest documented knowledge of its presence in England. So, for instance, at Carlisle Castle in the 1380s, they were being cast in Carlisle specifically to defend the city and the castle against the Scots. So artillery was placed in castles, in fortified houses, and in coastal forts. Obviously, it was also used in sieges against them too, from the medieval period right into the modern era. And so artillery at many English heritage sites is a major part of the story of warfare in England. So from the later 15th century, let's take a fine example, Dartmouth Castle. Dartmouth Castle isn't really a castle. It's an artillery fort that's purpose designed for artillery. So you get places like Dartmouth, important ports or anchorages, vulnerable beaches, vulnerable to attack or invasion. And so many of the sites in the care of English heritage were those sites. They were on the coast and they were in the front line of defending the country, really from the 1540s, the time of Henry, the, Henry mm. VIII, all the way through into the 20th century. We have loads of them. 
Pendennis Castle in Cornwall, Walmer Castle in Kent, Deal Castle, the one that we visited for an earlier podcast. Mm. So these are places which played a significant role in the defence of England until the middle of the 20th century. And they were still used, those Henry VIII device forts, weren't they, through, through until the First World War, Second World War, I believe. Yeah, well, you know, places like Pendennis were still mounting artillery until 1956. Hmm. So it's not all that long ago. No, and it just goes to show that um, they were well-developed and um, they were significant fortifications that still had some use through warfare, even though they were hundreds of years old by that point. Yeah, and you could call them redundant sites by the time of the Second World War in terms of artillery defence, but many of them had anti-aircraft guns, for instance, established Mm. within them. And so artillery still plays a role during the course of the Second World War on sites which were former coast defence sites, but had become much more of an anti-aircraft role. Okay, well, let's move on to Ian now, who's going to fill us in on some other aspects of artillery. Ian, can you tell us how many pieces of artillery English heritage has, and also where we can see them? We talked about some of them, uh, like the device forts, for example, along the south uh, and southwest coast and southeastern coast. Have you got any others? We have, yes. I'm going to say about 300. The reason I say about is not because we're really bad at curating our collection. It's because it is a little bit difficult to answer in terms of actually counting what we have. We have some spare parts, essentially. (laughs) So as well as complete guns at some of our sites, we've got just the barrels or carriages, components of guns. So it's kind of whether we include those in our overall count as to thinking about what we've got but as you appreciate that's quite a lot of pieces to look after which um, Beth will be talking about. They sit at I think it's 31 sites that I've counted mainly castles and coastal fortifications and in terms of the the sort of geographical spread they really do cover the whole range of vast sites right across England so sizable collections at Berwick-upon-Tweed up in the north right down to the Isles of Scilly, which um, also has a fair number of cannon dotted around uh, the sites on the Scillies. Mm -hmm. So you can travel the full length of the country. In fact, Paul and I have done that as part of our research, as I'm sure Beth has, and travel for many, many days across England and still keep seeing cannon at our sites. So, Um, Are there any sites that are particularly well stocked with artillery? There certainly are, yes. So, I mean, Of those 300 guns, I mean, I did a quick calculation and I think about a quarter of them are at two of our sites, which is Pendennis Castle in Cornwall, that's already had a mention, and Dover Castle in Kent. Between those two, they've got 41 and 37 pieces of artillery, respectively. So a huge number. And then if you add in a third site, which is Tilbury Fort in Essex, that kind of takes you to around a third of those 300 artillery pieces at these three sites. All three of those sites are much like you've just been talking about, that they have this long history. They're essentially Tudor fortifications that run right up to World War II. And the artillery that we have from those sites kind of matches that. So we have early artillery from kind of Tudor period at those sites through to kind of Second World War period artillery. Some of them are actually still fired as well, which is quite an interesting thing. And those sites being key sites for telling the story of artillery as well. That response that Paul's talking about, the development of coastal defences and the counter development of new technologies in artillery. And we can tell that story at these sites where we've got the larger assemblages of artillery. 
and on occasion we're able to fire some of the artillery so that's a, an additional element at the larger artillery sites yes definitely it's always good to see these things in action to try and live that history are there different kinds of artillery in the collection like different caliber guns and different shapes and sizes and that sort of thing we refer to the guns as black guns and green guns and it just comes down to the kind of age of the gun and their kind of general appearance i mean about 80 percent of our artillery are what we refer to as black guns and what most people think of as cannon. They're very simple guns. They're essentially black tubes of iron, smoothbore muzzle loaders, the earlier technology that really goes right through from Tudor times until you get into the later Victorian era. So these smoothbore muzzle loaders, so where you don't have these spiraled grooves, the rifling inside the barrel, most early guns are muzzle loaded, which means you load them from the front. So you drop your shell or your projectile down the end of the barrel and mm -hmm. ram it down to the back of the gun. And so that's kind of how most early guns are loaded. Really, those kind of things that we think of as cannon, the black guns, account for the majority of the guns that we have on our English heritage sites, ranging from quite small little signaling guns that wouldn't cause a huge amount of damage through to massive, huge things that weigh sort of 30 plus tonnes. Are they original to the location that we find them in, for example? With those black guns, the answer is almost always no. We've got a few notable exceptions. There's um, the fantastically named Queen Elizabeth's pocket pistol at Dover, which was built in 1544 and was a, a diplomatic gift for Henry VIII. That's possibly stood at Dover since 1547. And there are others. So at Goodrich Castle in Herefordshire, there's Roaring Meg, a wonderfully named and wonderful Civil War period mortar that was built in 1646, I think, and was used in the siege of Goodrich Castle. That's still displayed on site now, although I believe it's only been there since 2004. But we do have a number of guns that have these long associations with sites. But the reality of it is, is that they're made of metal. They're quite valuable things. Once they reach the end of their kind of working life, we would expect them to be taken away and reused or recycled. So it's not surprising that the original guns, if you go to Pendennis Castle, we don't have the original guns that defended Pendennis. So we are always trying to do a best case fit, if you like, to try to give the public an understanding of the appearance of these sites when they were in use. So in the most case, we've been sort of forced to look at other sources for these things. So we have guns from our sites, for example, Tilbury Fort that I've already mentioned. They excavated a, a fairly large group of cannon from the moat there that are now part of the English Heritage Collection. So they were conserved once they'd been excavated and placed on replica carriages. So that's quite surprising then, really, that a lot of English heritage members or visitors to sites will be sort of seeing a sort of illustration of what it might look like. It might not be the exact thing, but it's the closest that you can possibly get if you can acquire the inventory. Can I come in on that? Yeah. Just to say that Ian's dead right, but just to add that most of the guns that we place on our sites are of the right type and the right period, even if they aren't the actual guns. 
that were in place. So mm. that, that's our policy, really, to try and do that. Visitors do get an accurate picture, by and large, although there are exceptions, obviously, of what it would have been like at one of these sites. So the firepower is as faithful as possible to the time period, if uh, not yes. the location. I think that's right. You know, we're always making compromises, you know, in terms of the actual placement of a gun on site. We would want to put a 18th century gun in an 18th century emplacement. But I think the actual process of being able to see up close and personal the actual gun of the actual type and period, even if it was never actually on that site, is a huge thing for visitors mm. and something that takes them beyond reconstruction drawings and textual information that tells people how a fort worked. And that's the kind of power of objects. Absolutely. Just going back to the uh, recycling aspect of uh, guns that fell out of use or, or whatever, what happened to them in the end? Because I've heard that some ended up as bollards in, in certain cities, that they were turned upside down, put in the ground and became bollards. Is that true? Absolutely, yes. You can see that as you walk up to a couple of our sites. As you walk up and approach Dover, you'll see bollards in the ground that on closer inspection, they're cannon. The rear end of a conventional black gun is quite distinctive. It often has a little loop or a ball on the rear end of the gun, and that's what you'll see protruding from the ground. And some of those have been removed from the ground. So we, some of our sites we actually have now displayed on replica carriages, things that were removed, that had been used, you know, as a whole second life as, as a bollard or for, you know, mooring boats in harbours and ports and things. And mm. they've then come back into our collection and been returned to their first life as a gun on a, a sort of replica carriage. So, Well, you could do a survey of the entire English nation and see if there are any bollards in cities that uh, you could upend and uh, buy off or something. And um... I, I'm, I'm sure there's a few that are still out there for the public to go and find. So um, yeah, perhaps we should have a, a spot our bollard, a spot our, <laughs> our cannon bollard campaign or something to uncover some lost ones. Absolutely. Just before we move on to further audits and surveys, you were going to talk, Ian, about green guns as well, because there's green and black. So what do the green guns do? That's sort of our slang for the very late 19th and 20th century guns. They're essentially World War One and World War Two weapons. They are much more complicated. And, you know, when you look at them, they're not the simple tube of iron. You're looking at very complex pieces of modern machinery with moving parts. And Paul talked about range finding equipment, this sort of material starts to be mounted on guns and their carriages are kind of more complicated as well. So as Paul said there, they're starting to become something that is used against a greater range of targets as well. So aircraft being a new target for guns means that guns have to develop in a different way. Just very simple things like if you're firing a gun up in the air, you don't want the projectile to drop out while you're loading it. With these later 20th century guns, they've become breech loaders, which simply means they're loaded from the breech or rear end of the gun. That's a more efficient technology. But once you start doing that and then turning the gun up 90 degrees to aim it at the sky, you put the projectile in, let go of it, and it drops out on your foot. So the technology has changed for these later green guns. They are inherently more complicated in terms of the parts and complexity of them. It was a different story, actually, uh, when English Heritage came to think about rearming its sites. 
arming it with black guns was kind of fine because as we said there's a sort of ready supply of those but when you come to put first and second world war guns on sites it was a bit more complicated because the ministry of defense as i think paul hinted at left a lot of the coastal defense sites in 1956 they did that because coastal defense and anti-aircraft defense changed with the advent of guided missile technology so from that point these large caliber guns become a thing of the past and they're consigned to history and they are literally consigned to the scrap heap because as the ministry of defense leave these coastal fortifications they obviously don't leave large pieces of artillery around for the next owner to play with they take them into their reserves where they can use them for test weapons and things or they chop them up and what English Heritage did in the early 1990s was, on the invitation of the Ministry of Defence, went to some of the proof and testing establishments, which were the kind of places where they did testing of ammunition and that sort of thing, and particularly one at Shoebury Ness in Essex. And English Heritage, along with some other organisations, were given the opportunity to go and rifle through this scrapyard, basically. And so what we were able to do is to get from the Minister of Defence a range of weapons that told that story of later 20th century artillery. And we were very fortunate to do that because nowadays, if we started from scratch, we would really, really struggle. We may display a six-inch gun that's a large coastal gun, but we may not be able to get exactly the right mark and model, as it were, of the gun as would have been originally mounted there. So we've, again, as Paul said, English Heritage is trying to be authentic in what it displays, but we have to respect that these things are now pretty rare. And in many cases, we have to go for a best fit that gives people a really good idea of what the defences would have looked like at a particular time. And we were also lucky in the 1990s that, that lots of other European nations were moving towards the same modern technologies that we were and some of the pieces of artillery were being sold off so we were doing a slightly what seems now like a, a strange thing of buying artillery from european countries <laughs> from their armed forces and buying up redundant pieces of kit so a lot of our anti-aircraft guns come from that source some of them ex-ministry of defense but some of them have also been purchased on the market essentially in the 90s and we've been able to piece together some really interesting stories about how they ended up in our collection and their service life as it were so i gathered that you ian and paul as well you are now doing an audit of all the artillery in the english heritage collection without putting in another pun uh, what is the aim of this project I think the main one is that we talked about this idea of ensuring we, we are authentic in how we display the guns, ensuring that the public get the best possible understanding of how they were used. So what we're really doing is assessing the significance of each piece in turn. So with some of them, we know that they are, as I said, our best available approximation to the original weapon. So what we really want to understand is the significance of each piece. We want to understand how authentic it is, how appropriate it is to the site where it's displayed and, and the particular context within that site. So that's the kind of primary aim, I think. Yeah, that's it. I mean, these, these guns have been collected over about 30 years and the process you've described of acquiring guns sometimes meant that we just took what was going so there are some guns, for instance, that we might not choose to keep. 
So it's an audit in the true sense of the word, but also it's going to, when we're finished, inform our future decision-making on displays of guns. So in the background, we're also doing research on the properties themselves to find out if these guns were in service at that location, or if there's another reason why they should be there, because sometimes these sites were used as temporary depositories for guns or for training. And then if necessary to rebalance where they are, we might actually consider moving guns from one place to another so that a particular gun is in the most appropriate location. And I suppose finally, from my point of view, as Ian described, these guns come to life when they're used. So we want to see them used. And in that process, we're not just doing demonstrations, we're raising volunteer crews on some of our sites, volunteer gun detachments that appear in uniform and we train them to do authentic gun drills. Mm. So it really does bring the whole thing alive when you see a uniform crew acting to the original commands and firing these weapons. So not only do we want to have the right guns in the right place, but we want to make them relevant to visitors when they go and see them. Well, let's bring in Beth now into the conversation. Beth is our senior collections conservator. Obviously, we know that this artillery, some of it is actually used and some of it isn't, but how is it generally cared for and maintained? Well, artillery, like any other collection, we know there will be change and deterioration over time. And so very much my job for this collection, as with any other, is to try and manage that change and to slow the deterioration as much as is possible within practicalities and what's possible. Interestingly, Ian and Paul talk about the green and the black guns. And actually, a lot of the way we care for them, it somewhat splits out in the same way because the more complex green guns often have slightly different strategies to the older black guns. But for the whole collection, our first strategy really is to try and do little and often. And that regular annual maintenance is really the sort of the first step in our arsenal, excuse the pun, (laughs) of, of caring for our collection. And so that will mean that each year we go around the country over the year caring for each of these items. And that will be washing them down to remove salt deposits and other accretions. We don't repaint the guns entirely, but we will look for where there are small spots of corrosion or rust coming through from the metal underneath. And we'll actually treat those and repaint that. Where you have particularly the older guns on wooden carriages, we'll look to oil the wood to, again, help withstand being outside in the weather. And we'll also look at what we call tompions, which are the wooden plugs or bungs that go in the mouth of the cannon. We tend to fit these so that rubbish and wind and rain doesn't blow inside the cannon where you have the bare metal. Um, And it also stops things being put in them because I think children find it an amazing place to post (laughs) toys and things occasionally otherwise. (laughs) And then on top of this little and often annual work, over a five-year period, we do what we call maintenance plus, which is like a beefed up version. And that means we get around each of our sites with the black cannon and we will take special lifting equipment to take the cannon off the wooden carriages so that we can then get to all the areas that are difficult to reach when they're in situ and they're sat on top of these wooden carriages. So it means we can do a much more thorough spot treatment clean of the cannon annals of the carriages and we also take the opportunity to do some running repairs to the carriages if they're needed so if we find there are localized areas where the wood is starting to rot or split 
will actually take out a small area and splice in a new piece because obviously it's really important that our carriages are sound and stable when you've got a really heavy piece of iron effectively sat on top of this. Are there particular challenges of looking after the artillery collection? I mean, I suppose it must be different from looking after a painting, for example. We've done an episode on that before. I mean, firstly, as is obvious, they're outside. And so therefore you are, before you do anything else, dealing with the elements. And to a degree, that's because these objects are more robust than the painting. They don't have all the complex layers. But unlike what's often perceived, they're not indestructible. And people tend to think that's a great big hunk of metal, you know, how much damage could actually happen particularly on the coastal sites of which, as Paul and Ian have mentioned, we have many, having a great big chunk of metal on a coastal area where you have hot, humid, wet, salty spray blowing towards them is pretty much one of the worst things you could do for a great big chunk of metal. If you've ever left a spade in the garden overnight and seen how the metal there Mm. corrodes, it's a similar sort of thing. A large proportion of these are either iron or steel. So that that ferrous metal responds very rapidly to moisture. So actually, if you have these items on the coast, they'll deteriorate about 20 times quicker than if you just had them a few miles inland. Who does the work then for all the conservation work then? Do you have a team of conservators? So I do have a number of specialist conservators and they will often have background in something like engineering or very industrial items because it's, it's a specialism in itself. So each year I'll look at the reports and discuss with them sort of problems that we found and then we will work out what work we can do. Inevitably, as with everything, we can't do as much as we'd like, so we have to prioritise. And that will very much be looking at, are we starting to see a lot of corrosion on certain items? So as we were talking about these great big blisters and lumps and bumps, because actually the corrosion you see on the surface is often only an indicator of a lot going on underneath just by the way that iron corrodes. So you can have all sorts of unpleasantness going on underneath so the extent of the corrosion can be more than you can see visually if you don't keep a very close eye on it. Bearing that in mind then and the fact you've got to get a really good close look how do you decide which guns need priority treatment? Well obviously in the first instance as I say is to look at the condition but actually that's where Ian and Paul's work is also massively valuable because as I say we are always having to make decisions on what we can do in terms of what we can afford but also what we have capacity to do as there are only certain people who are capable of doing this work. We also have the added complexity that by and large although not always the later guns the 20th century guns are much more prone to deterioration and much more difficult to care for. So we know in the first instance, they will often be the items that we're going to have to do even more intensive work on. And that's because the complexity means you have lots of nooks and crannies where water can sit. It makes it very hard to remove that, but also quite hard to reach areas so that you can check that they're not corroding, that they don't need treatment. But also quite large parts of them are made of what we call sheet metal, And as that corrodes, it delaminates and flakes. So if you think of like a phyllo pastry, those layers of the metal will start to delaminate off and to fall off. And you Mm. can imagine that starts to make the structures very weak. And with a huge gun weighing several tons, often even more, what you don't want is a structure that isn't stable. Do you have to move guns off site sometimes to be restored or conserved undercover, for example? We do, yes. If we're doing what we call full conservation, we will, wherever possible, take the guns off site to deal with them because you actually get a much better finish and it's much easier to control the environment and the works that you're doing. And when actually the first 
challenge often is taking the gun into its component parts or breaking it down to a certain degree just to make it manageable in terms of dealing with its weight and size and sometimes frankly just to get it out of the site because you can imagine many of these sites weren't built to have enormous pieces of artillery wheeled through gates so often we can't take them out in one piece even if we'd wanted to but then once we have managed to disassemble them unseize bolts and get them into their, their pieces we will do much more intensive works where we'll actually strip the old corrosion products completely away in a very controlled way using air abrasion and then we will repaint it in a particular product that we use which has the best life that we can find that still is compatible with us being able to then once it's back on site going back and doing our spot treatments as and when it's necessary and the other thing we will look at then is if we need to replace small areas because they have become too thin or there are holes in them just to make sure that the object's stable wherever possible we retain as much of the original material as we can because we are very much conservation as opposed to wanting to do restoration so we aim to conserve what's there and to keep as much of the original authentic piece as we can in terms of getting the guns off these bastions potentially or wherever they are is it quite difficult for, do you need a crane or do you need a JCB to come in and collect them? Or how does it work? We, we do use all sorts of equipment and we have the best toys, frankly, for this type of conservation <laughs> compared to most other things. We will generally use a vehicle of some sort and depending on how difficult it is to access in the terrain, it may need to be something that's four by four or is helpful for lifting. We also use something we call a gantry, which is, breaks down into pieces and it's effectively something where you can winch up your pieces so that you can take your cannon or your barrel off of the carriage or the trailer that it sits on and an awful lot of it is understanding your object and understanding how these things come apart where the heavy bits are how they're loaded and so again that massively comes down to the expertise of the people that we use to do this work and that's why we're very very careful who actually carries out this work. It's delicate work for something that is so heavy and robust and impressive and powerful, isn't it? It's an opposite. <laughs> it absolutely is. I mean, it's, it's the worst of both worlds because the guns are actually surprisingly fragile, although they're big and heavy. You know, they can be very brittle. If you catch them in the wrong way, you can really damage pieces. And often, as I say, although we do carry out conservation, they have taken the brunt of the elements for quite some years. And so they do have weaknesses. And so we're always very aware of that because also, as Ian was saying, it's particularly the later items, ironically, there aren't that many of them around. So just like any other collection, we have to be very mindful that we need to be caring for these with the knowledge that we want them to continue forward so that other people new visitors over the generations will come to site and still be able to see these and experience them. Bearing that in mind then, and bearing everything in mind that we've spoken about so far, what would each of you recommend as one gun or cannon in, in the collection for a visitor or member to see? Do you have any favourites? Who wants to go first? Should we start with Paul? <laughs> okay. Well, I've got two actually, but that's probably cheating. <laughs> uh, <laughs> certainly as a piece of magnificent art, as opposed to a weapon of war, which it also is, then Queen Elizabeth's pocket pistol at Dover. It's a magnificent thing. It's enormous and it's very beautifully decorated, as is suitable for the fact that it was a diplomatic gift. It's a very rare thing and it's a very beautiful piece of work. So I'd recommend that. And it doesn't fit in your pocket. <laughs> 
<laughs> Certainly not. You need a very deep pocket for that one. But I've, I've also got a soft spot for another gun at Dover, which is called a three-inch anti-aircraft gun. And that is one of the guns that we fire regularly. The reason I have a soft spot for it is that I took part in the, the works to put it back onto site, but also it happens to be its type is the first purpose-made anti-aircraft gun to try and solve those problems that Ian was talking about earlier. And when was it used? During the First World War and up to and including the early part of the Second World War when it was superseded by a, a more modern model. Okay. Ian, do you have any favourite cannon? I'm not going to surprise Paul or Beth. I'm going to go for a, a Bofors gun, which is a Second World War anti-aircraft gun. It's a, a light anti-aircraft gun. Firstly, I, th I think they're beautiful, which is weird, I know, <laughs> but it's a very elegant gun design and also very effective, which is why it was so successful that I think it was used by about 20 different nations during the Second World War and, and afterwards. It actually stayed in service right up until the Falklands conflict in the 1980s. So it has this really long history. We've got several examples in the collection, including a, a almost immaculate one, which is actually in store at the moment in one of our, our collection stores, which comes complete with its full range of all its spare parts from as you gradually and, and slightly unintentionally become a gun geek, um, <laughs> you find that, that being able to see things like the spare parts that go with the original guns is quite fascinating. So that would be my choice, I think. Beth, do you have a favourite bit of firepower in the English Heritage Collection? Well, I'm just going to change my allegiance because I was going to talk about Roaring Meg, but as Ian's already alluded to the Civil War mortar, I thought just for a bit of variety, I was going to mention one of the 32-pounder Blomfield cannons on the Isles of Scilly at St Mary's Garrison. And although the cannon itself is not that unusual, it actually stands on a cast iron standing carriage that was made specifically for it to be located to that spot on the island and that is quite unusual it's actually an original 19th century carriage and it has to be said that if you want the most amazing view whilst looking at cannon that has got to be the place to go <laughs> it sounds like a, an ab absolutely picture postcard place to finish with i would say thank you all for talking to us it's really interesting and um obviously we recommend that uh, people go out and a do some bollard spotting which are actually cannon and the other thing is, see if you can visit some of these sites and um, get some, some snaps in front of them, I suppose. Yeah, I'd echo that. They are, all of them are usually very beautiful coastal locations. So the combination of historic properties, these awesome weapons and their location is incomparable. So get out there. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll investigate the history of the Swiss cottage for Queen Victoria's children at Osborne on the Isle of Wight. Prince Albert really wanted to instill this idea of value, grow things, understand the effort involved and understand the rewards you can get if you put that effort in. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>